Hindu Hindu Podcast. I'm Matt McDermott. It's Hindu Heritage Month, Hindu American Awareness and Appreciation Month. Call it what you like. Different places are calling it different things. Today, I'm speaking with Phil Goldberg, author of, among other books, American Veda, Life of Yogananda. He's perhaps the go-to person when it comes to the influence of Hinduism on American thought and the American experience, to curb a phrase from the PBS series. This is Phil's second time on the podcast. I've asked him to come on again because it's the 75th anniversary of the, one of the most influential books in this space, Autobiography of a Yogi. Before we start, though, I just want to point out to anybody, if we ever use this on video, I'm holding it up. If the audio sounds a little bit weird, it's because this little audio technica decided literally 10 seconds before we were going to go on after I was doing an audio test that didn't want to work anymore. So you're hearing it straight from um, the internal microphone on a MacBook Pro. So, Phil, for those listeners who somehow haven't heard of it, what is Autobiography of a Yogi? Who wrote it? And why is it worth talking about 75 years after the fact? First, I have to say that it's very Hindu, that Hindu Heritage Month or whatever it is has many names. (laughs) Indeed. Well, I mean, for people that don't know the background of that is that for many years, Hindu American Foundation, who produces this podcast, has been promoting Hindu American Awareness and Appreciation Month. It's a little bit of an awkward acronym, but it parallels other months, commemorative months for other communities. And we've been pushing states to have resolutions on this. And California has for many years. And this year, some other organizations and HAF is one of the partners of these organizations, I should say, is promoting Hindu Heritage Month. Um, which is, we're all talking about the same thing, the influence of Hinduism on the United States and uh, honoring the contributions of Hindus. So with that out of the way, back to the question, why, why should anybody care about 75 years of um, Autobiography of a Yogi? Autobiography of a Yogi, officially published December 1st, 1946 was written by Paramahansa Yogananda, who was possibly the most influential of the gurus who came here from India, uh, certainly in the top two or three. And one of the primary reasons, if not the primary reason for his uh, impact, which continues to this day, because the book was published in 1946, he passed in 1952. So he's been gone nearly 70 years, but his impact is still strong. And one of the chief reasons for that, and he predicted this, was the autobiography of a yogi. Uh, he was called, you know, among other things, the first superstar guru of the 20th century and the father of yoga in America and things like that. Um, And the book has been called, rightfully, one of the most influential spiritual books uh, of the 20th century. And certainly up there among, if not the, the top of the list, of books about Hindu Dharma or Indian philosophy. Uh, to have made an an impact in the last, you know, forever. 
And um, so it's it's worthy of commemorating, you know, a number like 75th anniversary. Lots of famous Americans have been influenced by autobiography of a yogi, people that you may not even think of, um, you know, people in the tech industry, all sorts of people. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. First, let me tell you that when I was researching American Veda, <clears throat> I did over 300 interviews with people who were, most of them, uh, because they were influenced to one degree or another mm-hmm. by mostly Vedanta and yoga. And when I asked how they first got uh, interested in it, what were the early influences? If they mentioned a book, it was far and away more likely that they would mention Autobiography of a Yogi than any other book. Mm-hmm. Some would say I read a translation of the Bhagavad Gita. Some would say, you know, because I interviewed most of so many of the people I interviewed were baby boomers because, you know, that's where the big impact happened. Uh, many of them mentioned Ram Dass's Be Here Now. Sure. But Ram Dass mentioned Autobiography of a Yogi <laughs> so, when I interviewed him. So it had a big impact on especially that generation. In fact, let me. This is the copy I read in 1970 because I was of that generation. And I love to, to point out that I still have this hardcover edition all these years later, 51 years later. And especially in the first 10 years after that, from the early 70s to the mid 80s, I moved all the time. And yet this is still with me. So, so what, what makes it what, what makes it so poignant? Why, why, why have you kept that? What is it? Well, it was it cost five dollars, it says on the cover. And I know I wouldn't have had five dollars. I know five dollars in 1970 for a book. I, mean, I, have, I would not. I, I, I could barely make lunch. And so I it was it was definitely one of the most. Borrowed and given out books. Mm-hmm of all the books and it made its way around the counterculture where we were exploring all these things. So I probably borrowed this and never returned it. So I am making up for that karma by promoting it now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, go. Sorry. um, You, you mentioned famous people. Yeah. Uh, Over the years, there would be sort of waves of publicity for it uh, because of some celebrity factor, usually. Mm-hmm. Little known is that Elvis Presley was a big fan. And he used to go to the Self-Realization Fellowship to meet with the monastics there. Which, which one places first? Where, which one would Los he Angeles. In the, Los the, the, lake, the Lake Shrine one. And so the Lake Shrine and the Mother Center, mm-hmm. you know, which is Yogananda founded in 1925. Um, more better known because he was trying to be low key. But just a few years ago when Steve Jobs passed, 
it came out that he had, before he died, said at his memorial service, copies of autobiography of a yogi should be given to everyone in attendance. And, and this was in the news. It, it was an important book in his life. George Harrison used to keep copies around to give to people. I forget the exact quote, but, you know, when they needed some straightening out back in the day. And he, when George, and this is important because of how important the Beatles were in this whole transmission of India to the West, when they went to India and took up transcendental meditation back in the late 60s. Prior to that, George went to India to study sitar with Ravi Shankar. And while he was there, being the seeker he was, Ravi Shankar's brother gave him a book by Vivekananda, Raj Yoga, Mm -hmm. and Autobiography of a Yogi. And those two books, he always said, is what turned him into, you know, essentially a Hindu and a a great, a genuine yogi and a bhakta and all the other things that followed from George's um, introduction, including bringing the Beatles to meet Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and everything that flowed from that. So. There it is. And the other question, of course, that, you know, there's no doubt next is why? <laughs> yeah. Why, why does yoga, why, why does Yogananda matter today? And what's in this specific message versus any of the other texts that, that people have access to and increasingly have access to? Well, now it's, of course, very different from the late 40s, the 50s, and even, you know, into the mid and late 60s. Access is, I mean, when I first heard about the Bhagavad Gita, I couldn't find a copy in a a bookstore. Mm -hmm. And and that was in New York. I had to go to an esoteric bookstore in downtown. And now, of course, you know, there's Gita's everywhere. You can go online and read 10, you know, translations, but, or a hundred. Wasn't the case then. And when, People, especially then, were just in the phase of being curious about this and, the, you know, the wisdom of the East. And maybe you heard about it from an elder like a famous elder like Aldous Huxley or, or uh, Alan Watts or Houston Smith or Joseph Campbell. But then you wanted if you wanted an authentic voice. You could go to the sacred text. You could go to the Upanishads and the Gita and and all that. But this was a personal story by somebody who didn't, who lived not too long before that. And so it had, in addition, it, it wasn't a textbook. It wasn't a book about yoga philosophy or Vedanta, as the others were. It was a compelling account of real life yogi. And Yogananda was much more forthcoming and candid about his, his own life, his own life story, than most monastics, you know, most monks sannyasis generally are yeah i mean there's a tradition of 
some, if not entirely forgetting or your past life, it's not brought up. Or they may say, you know, I grew up in South India and my parents were merchants or whatever, yeah. but not in very much detail. And he did. But and the irony of that is part of the uh, fascination with his story is, you know, he goes back to his childhood and how what a seeker he was and meeting his guru and all that. The irony is that when I had the idea to write a biography of Yogananda, I said, well, you know, he's already written the autobiography. So I look, I reread it and I realized less than 10 percent of his book is about what happened after he came to America. Mm -hmm. So there was a tremendous amount left out. And so that's why I wrote. Right. So how many years after he came to America was the book written? So how many, how many years of the story are left out? In 1920. Okay. So he, he was here 26 years when the book was published. Of course, it took years to, to write and get it. But, um, and then he died uh, six years later. So one of the reasons he's an important figure is that he was the first of the gurus to come from India who made America his home and his headquarters. The Swamis who followed Vivekananda in that Ramakrishna Vivekananda lineage, many of them came here and they opened Vedanta centers, but their influence was limited and local. Mm -hmm. Yogananda traveled the country for the first uh, 15, 20 years of his time here all the time and opened centers all over and gave lectures in big auditoriums. So he was a big a, a public figure, a very a public facing, as we say now, uh, yogi. Um, and then the book just, you know, grew his, uh, the recog his recognition and the activities of his centers and everything else exponentially. So, you know, he made it his home and he made L.A. his headquarters. And, you know, as it became a global uh, organization, L.A. was its headquarters for the rest of the world, not India. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it, it's an American phenomenon. And he was in the news a lot. There was, you know, all kinds of stuff. But the, the autobiography in the last uh, sort of... He went to India for the only time he was gone for any length of time. He went in back to his beloved homeland just once. He was there for a year. When he came back in, in 1936, from that point on, he started spending most of his time in Southern California. And he was focusing on his legacy. And one of the key, key factors in his eyes of having a legacy, something that would continue after he's gone was to write. And he wrote voluminously, not just the autobiography, but that's the sort of cornerstone of this uh, outpouring of the written word also spoken word. He had a team of people transcribing what he said, and you know, helping formulate and edit the books. It had rough going as a as a book, 
but it finally was published after the war in 1946. But one of the other, some of the other factors, including just being, a, it's a compelling life story, but it's really, uh, if you look at it, <laughs> it's, it's called an autobiography, but much of the book is not about him. It's about other people. He writes about Gandhi, who he knew and met with. He writes about Ramana Maharshi and his time meeting with him and Ananda Ma and all these saints and guru figures and legends. So there's a lot of exotica and fascination. And if you are a, and still are, if you're a seeker and you, you're turn you're interested in these yogic teachings learning about them through the lives of masters and you know extraordinary human beings is yeah much more compelling than just reading you know a treatise on you know the yoga sutras or something we started this by talking about the you know the influence of hindus and hinduism on america it's occurred to me yogananda made his headquarters in Los Angeles, not too far, sort of probably equidistant from where we're both sitting over Zoom. And what was the influence, if you care to speculate or if no one's specific, what was the influence of America on Yogananda? What, I mean, let's let's flip flip it around. If he was here for that long, even taking into account it was an age when getting back to India wasn't just, you know, a 12 hour flight or whatever it is, it was a bigger undertaking. So even discounting that he could have gone back and forth, but no, he made his headquarters here. What was the influence of America on him and his message? That's a a good, good point. And one I took up when I wrote the biography, it was like you to see how his um, message, so to speak, gradually became adapted as he learned who his audience was here. Mm-hmm. This was not India. These were not Indians. These were not people born into Hinduism who may have, you know, he could, who needed more teachings or whatever. He was dealing with America and it took him a while to learn. There's a lot of wonderful stories about it. You know, he landed in Boston in 1920, in September of 1920. It was just two years before the presidential election, the first time women could vote. So that gives you a sense of how, you know, what life was like. It was a very, uh, you know, we still have a racist country and dark skinned people still have difficulty here. But in a century ago, 1920, to be a dark-skinned man with long hair and orange clothing was really weird, representing what would have been considered a heathen religion. Uh, so he faced a lot of uh, bigotry and, and racism and harassment and all that. He not only had to learn to adapt to that, but he also had very receptive people, people who may have known about Vivekananda's work, may have met. Uh, Swamis in the Vivekananda world. It's, you know, Boston had uh, the big influence of the transcendentalists and the new thought movement. So he also had eager seekers um, and they helped him learn how to speak to Americans and how to adapt. And he, you could see it in the change of his public lecture titles. Hmm. Maybe, you know, he starts to adapt and realizes Americans are very pragmatic people. 
They're into self-improvement. They want a better life in the material world. Many are seekers. They want spiritual enlightenment. They want God. They want uh, liberation. But most people just want a better life. And so you see him adapting the teaching. So it would become like super conscious meditation for you know better health or for you know better career opportunity, whatever it was, which is an ongoing story in the transmission of Hinduism to America, especially in under the rubric of yoga. And people like you and me are very concerned that the authenticity and the, the integrity of the teachings can be compromised with that. Well, so was he. He's one of those people who was able to adapt the teachings without distorting or diluting or compromising something. So the, 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 the vision of higher consciousness, the, the, the vision of you know, spiritual upliftment and growth was never far. So all these other practical promises of his Kriya Yoga methods and everything were uh, enveloped in the larger vision. And he never strayed too far from that. And for that, he deserves a lot of credit. He also learned to adapt to modern technology. I mean, radio was barely a thing when he first arrived. And then it took off in the mid to late 20s. Uh, automobiles. He, he traveled cross country from New York up to a uh, state of Washington and down the West Coast to, to L.A. Uh, in 1924 and five. And the interstate system. It was prior, a for 30 years prior to the interstate system yeah. when the roads were just adapting to these newfangled modes of transportation and they were just building roads and gas stations and places to sleep and, you know, pitch a tent and all that. So, and he fell in love with the landscape of America. He loved, as did Vivekananda, the American uh, spirit of freedom of inquiry and freedom of speech and religion and the, the seeking mentality, the, the seeking of a better life. He loved that. And he, he wrote about it. He wrote poems about it and, and that sort of thing. And, and his relationship to Jesus and Christianity is really, really interesting part of his story. Most, if not all the gurus who came here always would, and in India, they would always treat Jesus Christ as a, either uh, a great yogi, a great uh, realized master, maybe even uh, an avatar up there with you know, Krishna and Rama. And they would always honor him. They would quote him, you know, in speaking to the West, especially. Yogananda took it a step further. He actually treated Jesus not only on a par with Krishna, but as part of his lineage. So if you go to any Yogananda 
organization or center. And you see on the altar, you see his parampara. You see picture of Yogananda with his guru and his guru's guru and his guru's guru, the legendary Babaji. You also see a picture of Krishna and a picture of Jesus. So he treated, he said he was here to bring out the original, you know, classic yoga teachings that of the Krishna of the, of the Gita and original Christianity, which he always distinguished from uh, the teachings of Jesus from what he called churchianity. And he, if you read, and there's volumes of his writings about Christ, it's very different, of course, from what you'd hear in the average church. Uh, that's, uh, I was starting to interrupt there because I, I please inform me because I, I genuinely don't know. This, I wasn't really thinking about Yogananda's relationship to Jesus when I was formatting my questions here. What, what sort of background in terms of religious scholarship of Christianity and Jesus did he have? Or was this his interpretation of you know, do unto others, some of the more pithy no, things. Much deeper than that. He has. Well, you know, yeah, fine. I mean, so what, what, what was his, yeah. what was his background on this to form this conclusion? Well, for one thing, his first two years of college were at Scottish rights church, uh, a, a university systems founded by missionaries. Okay. And from what I've been able to gather, the school, the two schools he went to for college, he transferred. Um, they were not heavy handed missionary schools out to convert everybody. But nonetheless, you know, a Western philosophy and Bible was part of it. His guru, Sri Teswar, was something of a biblical scholar mm -hmm. as, as well as. Uh, you know, deeply grounded in in the Hindu Hindu shastras, but and so he absorbed a lot from his own guru, but then also learned from Americans. Right, and you know, very early on, he said he realized, you know, Amer Americans get spiritual on Sunday mornings, so we'll have Sunday morning. He didn't call them satsangs. He called them Sunday morning service. Yeah, you're meeting people where they are, as it were. Yes, and they and if you go to one today in any Yogananda lineage on a Sunday morning, you might come away thinking, "Oh, this is sort of Presbyterian Hinduism," you know, because the message is very, you know, there. Yeah, it's yeah. Yogic. The, the 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 chanting might be a. A Sanskrit or an English translation of a Sanskrit thing or a song written by Yogananda with harmonium and all that. But the setting, the pews, the lectern, the altar, the prayer, you know, it, it has a, it's not like going to a Hindu temple in, you know, India. Let's yeah, put it yeah. And, um, and so he learned to adapt. And but the he's often been accused of sort of pandering to Christians with all of this, you know, celebrations of Chris, of Christmas, which were elaborate and 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 of Easter. But I don't think he was pandering. I think he was really sincere. He saw Jesus as a great 
master as an avatar. He was dealing with a Christian country and he interpreted Jesus in a way that was as if Jesus was, you know, a, a, an avatar from the Indian tradition. Yeah. So was he accused of this pandering at the time or is this a more modern? At the time, but yeah. even now, you know, people say, oh, all this Jesus stuff. Right. Or I'm really into Yogananda and I want to, you know, take initiation in his lineage. But the Jesus stuff is. We're going to leave that Jesus stuff aside. I'm imagining somebody who like <laughs> came from Christianity. He's like, I want to take initiation, but I'm not going back to that. I'm not. That's right. I left that. However, I also have met many, many people who are sort of like I left. They left the church when they were in college or something. It had nothing to do with it. Found their way to the Eastern teachings got interested in yoga and Yogananda changed how they understood Jesus Hmm. because they may have always had a place in their heart for Jesus and hated the church. And, you know, that's, or, you know, got tired of or bored with the church. So this gave them a way to honor the Jesus of their heritage in a different way by reframing who he was and how one can relate to him. I saw this many times. I saw it among Jews who were drawn to Yogananda's teaching and said, what's this Jesus stuff? And they said, oh, well, that's what you mean by Jesus. Okay, I can deal with that. He was a great teacher and a Jewish boy. And so I'm... He was a good Jewish boy. There we go. I'm on board. He was a spiritual teacher from a Jewish... I I can do that. So the reinterpretation... And the, at the same time, the honoring of him is, has, has had a, it was a, it was an important feature for many people yeah. over the years. Yogananda was, this, you know, for his time, and you hinted at this sort of a celebrity guru. What, what do you think the through line is, if there is one, if I'm not creating one where it doesn't exist, between Yogananda and modern popular gurus or teachers who are like, I'm not a guru, but you know, it's all in a name in the West, you know, influencers, I put down in my notes, not gurus, you know, and I was thinking of people like Deepak Chopra. I don't know if we've talked about this before, or we want to use him. I, I use him as an example. This is not to knock him in any way. He's been on webinars we've done who interpret teachings, Hindu teachings, and then mold them. Do you see what, what do you think is the through line in that? I think in a certain way, I always say that Vivekananda set the template for the future gurus. And in many ways, Yogananda set the template for the more modern gurus. Because they had, as we said, they had to adapt new language, new culture, new era, period of history, adaptation. And, And one of the great things about Hindu Dharma is it's universal and therefore readily adapted to a new time, a new place, a new culture. Um, But it has to be done with care. And some people, not naming names, are very uh, careless or very self-interested in how they adapt the teachings. And, you know, it, it can be exploitative and it could distort the teachings. Yogananda did his best not to do that. And many, many of the, you know, contemporary gurus and and the ones in between 
were also that way, bringing out different aspects of, of the tradition, adapting it to a new time and place, and trying to you know, maintain the integrity. It's an ongoing challenge. So, for example, Yogananda at one point realized, you know, he's getting very popular. People want to learn these methods. He can't initiate, he can't teach everybody individually or in little, you know, groups like you would traditionally in India. So he created a correspondence course, a mail using mail order, which in the 1920s was modern technology. You mailed a coupon and you got a lesson every week or two at your doorstep. And he got criticized for doing that, for, for, for what seemed an impersonal thing. Who, got, where, where was that? What quarter was that criticism coming from? What, what quarter was that? Coming from? Traditional Hindus in India who, who, you know, who heard about it. Yeah. Or maybe even, you know, the small Indian population in America, he might have been criticized. But he didn't give everything out in the correspondence course, just certain teachings. Hmm. Then, if you took the course and you then wanted initiation, that was done in a very traditional way and still is to this day. So, you know, he... There were there was care taken in how do you adapt, how do you reach more people? Part of that was training Westerners to represent his teaching. Well, you know, that that could be looked on suspiciously. Vivekananda did the same thing. Non-Brahmins, women who were given more authority than you know most spiritual organizations in the 20s and 30s did. So there was, there was an innovative and reformist and modernization aspect to his work and a traditional aspect and a conservative aspect to his work, which I found in pretty much every teacher who has had an impact, that sort of balancing act. Mm. But he, he, in many ways, set the template, especially for the gurus who came in the 60s and 70s when he was fresh in people's minds. And, you know, I don't know how conscious it was. Oh, let's do what Vivekananda did or what Yogananda did. But their example, he, Yogananda, was deeply influenced by Vivekananda, who came before him. He came to uh, uh, he he. Vivekananda came to America the year Yogananda was born. And if you go to Calcutta, Yogananda's home where he spent his teenage years and where his uh, great, great nephew now lives, you know, is a bit of a pilgrimage place. And you can walk from there to where Vivekananda Mm. family home is. And it's now a museum. And so he was deeply influenced by that, deeply influenced by Ramakrishna, you know, because Ramakrishna and the Kali temple was just, you know, up the river from Yogananda, very deeply influenced by that as a young man. So there's continuity of sorts, whether it's conscious or not. But, you know, Matt, we, we can't talk about uh, the autobiography of a yogi without discussing 
one of its most interesting features that, you know, is all the miracles and wonders in the book. Okay. I'm, I, I, you're getting my skepticism here. I'm a, I, I, I deserved. Yeah. There's a, <laughs> I, I admit there's more things in this world than I can explain. And for those that, you know, enlighten me what, and explain to listeners, you know, these miracles, wonders, and their place in all of this. Great feats of consciousness. He, there's a lot in, I forget the numbers, but when I was researching my biography of him, I said, what am I going to do? All the, he was, he wrote so much and talked so much about, you know, superpowers, what, you know, the Sid, Siddha, Sid, the, the cities that of the legendary yogis, these great feats of consciousness you know, that, uh, we've all heard about people, you know, levitating and, um, appearing in two places at once and people coming back from the dead. And I mean, if you, even the, 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 uh, titles of some of the chapters reflect that, you know, the, the levitating saint, <laughs> the, you know, and on and on. And he writes at length, and I, I hired a graduate student to go through the book and tell me, and there were like a few hundred of these uncanny or what we might call miraculous or, you know, uh, incidents and feats of, you know, it took up, takes up a, a, a big portion of the book. Well, it turns out that he was going to write a book called, about what he called the Yogi Christs of India. Mm -hmm. And when he was persuaded to write a memoir, he combined the two, essentially. So his story and the people he's, he's known and his family and all this stuff is intertwined with either... Uh, Miraculous things he's ex uh, witnessed or heard about. Mm -hmm. And I find there are two kind of people who like the book. People who are absolutely gobsmacked about all that, you know, stuff, supernatural, you know, superhuman stuff and can't get enough of it. And people who don't believe a word of it or are highly skeptical about it but love the book for all the other reasons. And even if they treat the miraculous stories as acts of imagination or Yogananda exaggerating or being uh, fooled, <laughs> yeah. there's enough in the book to go. And I've, I think he was quite sincere. And you could say, oh, he was gullible. He heard these stories and you can interpret this in different ways. And did that person really appear in two places at once? What, what was he, was this other book, I assume he's talking about essentially sadhus and other sannyasis, you know, getting these abilities. Was he doing that book? Do you know, as a point of com compiling them or was it to impress people or what was the, I think it was partly a compilation, but part I think, and, and you see it in autobiography of a yogi, when you ask yourself, why did he write so much about that? What did he do? 
I had a great moment when I was researching the book. I was talking to at uh, the the, um, the person who was then in charge of the archives at Self Realization Fellowship, the great historian of Yogananda and his organization, who's now the president of the whole organization. And I said, why, why do you think he did that? Why did he put all those, you know, cities and, you know, seemingly miraculous things? And he said, he answers that question in the title page of the book before you ever get, and I never even noticed it right here on the title page. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. It's, it's for, okay. For, it's, for listeners, we're recording this on video too. You're right, on right. the audio, and it's blowing out on the screen. What does it say? Right under the title page, it is a quote on on right under the title and the author's name, and it's a quote from the New Testament. Except ye see signs and wonders, ye yeah. will not believe. That's his epigraph to the book. And he essentially said, in my interpretation, this is why I'm telling you all this stuff. I'm getting your attention. And I'm going to also, in this context, not just tell you these stories and have you uh, have your jaw drop at this. I'm going to tell you in as rational and as scientific a way I can why these things are possible about the powers of consciousness. I'm going to invoke the laws of physics as they were known at that time. I'm going to explain them as best I can. And you will then see by these examples of what is possible when these yogic methods and yogic lifestyle are realized by exceptional human beings that you too can, if not do these wonders, yeah. have more powerful consciousness and it have a, you know, your life in a sense be miraculous in, a, in its own modest way. That I think was the intention of it. And it has, it does work that way for some people. Some of us, and I'm one of them, is like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not so sure. I'm sure this is possible. And maybe there are, you know, sadhus living in the Himalayas who do these things, but you know, how real is it for <laughs> and how, what, are the, what are the odds anybody listening to this is going to start levitating after a long meditation? But on the other hand. My intuition is better than it was before I took up all these methods. My health is better. My body is stronger. You know, so if you extrapolate from I can use the power of my mind to manifest things or to know what's going on at a distance, bring that down to my level. And it's like, yeah, I have better ideas. <laughs> I make yeah. better decisions. I, I, I have a clearer sense of intuition and knowing things in a non-rational way so and maybe you know i the, the quality of viveka of discernment is improved is better 
my heart opens up. I don't have to be in two places at once, you know, <laughs> or any of these things. Yeah. But he even has a whole section in the book, uh, a chapter devoted to uh, the title is the law of miracles. And that's his way of attempting to explain these things. Yeah. And by showing the powers of consciousness, you know, you, he's telling you yours can be more powerful as well. One final thing, you know, we, we've discussed the influence of the growing and changing influence of Hindus and Hinduism on the United States as more Indian born people come to the United States. In that context, why why do you think people should seek out Yogananda's teachings today versus, you know, Guru A, Guru B, Swami Y? Why, why Yogananda? One final I, I would not be one of those people who says, oh, you should go to, you know, seek out Yogananda's instead of somebody else's. I never, you know, I read this, as I said, in 1970. It had an impact on me. I never became a student of Yogananda's or a disciple. He's one of the many people who influenced me. I have great respect and reverence for him. Um, and I continue to learn from him and his example. I've, having written a biography of him, I've, I've, I've come to think of him as a, a role model for living a spiritual life in the world, uh, you know, as not as my guru, but as, you know, somebody who had to had his challenges and had to live a life in America during the depression, running an organization and all that. And, you know, he, he was a, 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 a sannyasi in the world. But um, so I wouldn't say you should look at Yogananda's teachings over name your guru. I would say everybody has to find the teachers that are right for them. And if Yogananda is one you consider, he, he would be, you know, a worthy person to learn from. But so are, are many others living and dead. So, you know, we each have to find our way. He had, you know, but the book is the autobiography, whether you become a disciple or not, there's much to learn in there. I mean, and, and one of the things I didn't even emphasize enough is that in all this stuff, his own personal stories, the stories of these uh, exceptional human beings, uh, the stories of, uh, you know, his travels and all that, he and, and the homage to his own guru and all this. There are uh, throughout the book explanations of Hindu teachings of Vedanta, of yoga, of Samkhya, all of this very lucid, very well presented in English for, you know, our culture. And the, the prose may seem a little old fashioned now to us, but it holds up and you learn a lot. So to me, I was already reading, you know, the Upanishads and the Gita and everything when I came across it, but I learned a lot and people learn a lot from reading it independent of all of its other features. So in a sense, it's a good introduction to Hindu Dharma, you know, in a, in a, context of an interesting life and a memoir.
so, you know, whether you become a student of Yogananda's or, you know, a devotee or a, an initiate, that's, you know, all your personal karma and your, you know, your own inclinations. So anything we haven't covered, Yogananda, Hindus in America, final, <laughs> final thoughts? I'm sure there's plenty we haven't covered. Well, but, yeah, um, we only have, we've been here for four, a little bit less oh, than Can now. I say something self-serving? Yeah. Yes, please. I'm, um, we're recording this in mid-October. Yeah. Um, in January, I'm going to be teaching a course on the autobiography of a yogi for Hindu University of America. So it's going to be a 10-week ten, ten course, and we're going to go through the book, and I'm going to bring into it you know, stuff that's not in the book that I've learned from my uh, research. Where, where, where can people find out more information on that? HUA, as in Hindu University of America, dot edu. I don't think it's posted yet because the fall semester is just beginning, but it will be. Or they can go to my website or contact me personally, philipgoldberg.com, and, you know, email me and I'll let them know. That's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.indoamerican.org slash donate.